All right, y'all. John chapter 10 this morning. John 10, we'll be starting in verse 1. Let me read this to us. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Church, this is the word of the Lord. All right. What is the good life? Picture it in your own mind. More than likely, all of us can imagine an answer to that question, and more than likely, all of our answers to the question of what is the good life share some common features. Like when you think of the good life, the place is probably of significance. Um, I talk to many people, many of you guys, um, who I think are convinced that wherever the good life is, it's not in Shreveport. <laughs> I get that. I've also felt that way. It's easy when you're having to boil your water, right, to think the, the good life must be somewhere else. Uh, but the same thing is true, um, uh, you know, of, of all kinds of things. I, I bet the good life is somewhere else. I bet uh, somewhere else they're not having to deal with dot, dot, dot. I bet that this kind of thing isn't going on over here, wherever, over there may be. Uh, I think the same kind of thing is happening in movements like hashtag van life. 
right? Like it's not necessarily a specific place in particular, but it's, it's just travel and it's, it's adventure, it's new horizons, it's, it's constantly getting to go from place to place and seeing amazing settings and um, incredible things. So maybe the place you're idealizing isn't just a single place. Uh, also, more than likely, the good life includes some view of work. Uh, in the good life, you are either not working or you're working in a different job or you're working a certain number of hours or you're only working when you want to work. Something like that. Prior to COVID, there was this big uh, financial independence movement that, that still exists, but I think COVID squashed it a little bit. But uh, it's known by the acrostic FIRE. You're familiar with this? It stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. Um, and in that movement, the idea is that by living like a bare bones existence for several years and investing the bulk of your income, one could conceivably retire early as long as you're willing to still maintain a pretty spark lifestyle. For people pursuing fire, the idealized good life is largely a life where you don't go to an office every day and there is no debt and I only work when I want to. Um, it's buying me seemingly freedom. Additionally, the good life you imagine probably also relates on some level to your like internal state of being. For example, a life where I'm no longer worried or anxious or fearful or compulsive. It could be a life where I'm at peace or I don't feel like I'm on a hamster wheel or I'm being controlled by other people. The biggest similarity, though, in our views of the good life is probably that it is rooted in some vision of personal autonomy. The good life is a life where I am doing what I want to do and no one else is making me do anything other than what I want to do. After all, this is my unique vision of the good life, and how dare you impose your vision of the good life on me? I want to do what I want to do, right? There are probably many other similarities among our collective views of the good life, but undoubtedly one of the biggest is that we all think we are not currently living it. The good life is other, it is elsewhere, it is after, it is in the future, it is down the road, it is something that we are maybe in search of. And yet in our text today, Jesus says that he has come so that people would experience life in abundance. In other words, I have come to bring you the good life as he defines it, the flourishing life as he defines it. And so it stands to reason that people who say they know Jesus would know all about this abundant life that Jesus is talking about. But, but here's the question. Do we? Is our lived experience in Christ that of what we would call abundant life? We pick up today on the heels of Jesus healing a blind man in chapter 9, and this caused yet another stir, not only because something miraculous had happened, but primarily because Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. The Jewish leaders were in an uproar over him, right? And chapter 10 seems to just carry on the dialogue that wrapped up chapter 9. 
Remember, in the original manuscripts, there are no chapters, there are no verses, there are no headings. So John here gives no indication that just because in our Bibles we've entered into chapter 10, he gives us no indication that we've moved on to some other setting or some other situation. And verse 21 at the very end of our text seems to indicate that people are still responding to the healing of the blind man that took place in chapter 9. One interesting thing about John's gospel, and we've mentioned this before, but there are no narrative parables in John's gospel. I mean, one of the things that just like so characterizes the teaching and ministry of Jesus in the synoptic gospels uh, is, is just not present here in John. In fact, this text is about the closest thing we get to a parable in John's gospel. And it's not my main point today, but I do just want to pull out verse 6 real quick where it says, Jesus says all of this at the beginning of the text, sheep and shepherds and folds and gatekeepers and all this, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So if you find yourself in that boat this morning, take heart. Um, Many of Jesus' hearers also didn't understand what in the world he was talking about. And even this week for me, uh, immersing myself in this text, um, there are several things here that are a little puzzling to me. But the biggest takeaway for me was that there was, so, there is so much more here in chapter ten than than maybe even I've been led to believe in the past in other sermons I've heard on this text, um, and that maybe we approach this particular passage in too sort of uh, thirty thousand foot of a way. Um, And even, uh, I think often we read it out of context by pulling out some of these very famous verses that we find in today's text and sort of making them say whatever we wanted to say. Uh, So just, I say that as a few caveats as we get into this today. Ultimately, though, I believe that Jesus is presenting us with a view of the good life and how to access the good life, and it is quite possible that his view of the good life presents a stark contrast to your own view of the good life. So let me start in verse 1. Read this with me, uh, or follow along in your Bible or on your phone. Uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, we're presented here with a number of characters. Um, One is just the sheepfold, uh, or the the pen, literally the the boundary of the flock that the the sheep are kept in. Another thing that we see here is the thief or the robber who climbs over the fence into the fold. Um, You you have the shepherd who comes in through the door. Uh, You have the gatekeeper here uh, who opens the door only for the shepherd. And, And then you have the sheep who respond only to the voice of the shepherd. And the shepherd leads them out of the pen. Notice, though, that the shepherd doesn't necessarily lead all the sheep. The language suggests that some of the sheep know him and respond to his voice. Um, And everyone who hears Jesus say these things says, huh, what are you talking about? 
So he goes on and he tells another story starting in verse 7 and he uses many of the same characters and many of the same metaphors and perhaps this is an expansion on the first story he tells. So, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock... And one shepherd. So once again, you have the fold, you have the pen, if you will. Uh, but this time, Jesus doesn't speak of a doorkeeper. He says instead, I am the door. Notice in the first little section, in the first five verses, he doesn't identify himself necessarily with any of the things, but as he expands on this, he says, I am the door. Now, perhaps there are other ways to get into the pen, but Jesus says there's only one way to come out of the pen and find pasture, and that is through him, the door. And that until he arrived, anyone else who showed up claiming to be a doorway to pasture was either a thief or a robber. They stand in contrast to the true door because somehow the door is also a shepherd. But not just any shepherd, he's the quote-unquote good shepherd. The Greek there for good is the word kalos, which doesn't just mean uh, like high quality or excellent. Um, it also has connotations of beauty and righteousness or virtue. It would not be totally out of line to translate this as I am the beautiful shepherd if we understand beauty to be rooted in virtue and moral excellence, not just in the aesthetic appearance of the shepherd. He's not just good to look at. There is this like interior beauty that sets him apart. Some scholars argue for translating it as I am the noble shepherd, which maybe is a bit more accurate. The problem with just saying good is that it is somewhat subject to your understanding of goodness, isn't it? What does it mean for him to be the good shepherd? I'm not sure our culture really knows what that word means, or at least what the Bible means by the word good. We often associate it simply with interpersonal kindness. Like if you behave nicely to other people, you are a good person. But in the Greek, that's a different word altogether. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness and goodness are two separate things in that list. There in Galatians 5, um, the word for kindness, Christatus, seems to be a form of goodness that meets needs and is free from cruelty. So when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and he says one of those... One of, one of the fruits is kindness. He's, he's not just talking about 
acting kindly interpersonally to other people. He's specifically hitting on this form of goodness that meets needs and is free from cruelty. So, so think about this. God's kindness leads us to repentance, Scripture says. He hasn't just been nice to us. He has met a real need in our lives through Christ. He has been kind to us. Whereas goodness in Galatians 5 is a different word even from what we find in John 10. It's the word agathasue or agathasune, which speaks of inherent or intrinsic goodness. Again, it's like this interior goodness, not just behavior, but a state of being. So in Galatians 5, with the fruit of the Spirit, the idea is that through sanctification, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are becoming truly good people. Not just people who act or behave in good ways sometimes, but people who are increasingly in their core becoming truly good. This past week, a man named Stephen Hoffenberg died. Um, I did not know of him, but Hoffenberg was a wealthy financier and a business associate of the, fa- of the infamous now Jeffrey Epstein. Dum, dum, dum. Uh, in 1995, he was convicted, this guy Hoffenberg was convicted of one of the largest Ponzi schemes ever at the time. This is before Bernie Madoff and all that stuff. He had swindled people out of $460 million. He spent 30 years in jail. However, after his death, one person said, if I had to describe him in a word, it was kind. Another said, he had his issues, but he was a good man. No, he wasn't. (laughs) He was a terrible person, right? The, The people who are talking about him are talking about his behavior to them in just interpersonal relationship. He, he was nice to me when I interacted with him. He behaved kindly to me, but he was not a good person. It doesn't make any sense when you look at the actual actions and deeds of his life. And if we believe scripture, the same thing is true of us. We may not be running Ponzi schemes, I hope. I actually had a church member in a previous church convicted of that. It was Jimmy. It's why he's not here today. (laughs) But none of us are righteous, not even one. None of us are truly noble or virtuous. Part of the point here is that when we say that Christ is the good shepherd, he stands alone in that. He is not one among many. There are not other good shepherds. And listen, this is huge. His goodness is not just something proposed to us as true. The truth of his goodness is seen in the fact that he lays down his life for the sheep. This is how his goodness is proven to us. And it is presented in contrast to that of a hired hand who doesn't really care about the sheep and who runs away when he sees a wolf coming. No, the true good shepherd so loves the sheep that he is willing to face the wolf and die for them. That is the pinnacle of nobility. And it comes from this intrinsic interior goodness not just some outward action. Look at verse 10. 
Because there are also these thieves and robbers that get mentioned throughout who are trying to get into the fold. They're trying to climb over the fence and get into the sheepfold and wreak havoc with the sheep. Now, now notice, at no point does Jesus indicate to us that he's talking about Satan here. Nine times out of ten, if you hear this verse pulled out, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Who, who are people talking about? They're talking about Satan most of the time. They're trying to use this verse to say, oh, this is the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And, and those things may be true of him, but nowhere here do we get the indication that that's who Jesus is talking about, or even that he's talking about a singular thief. In fact, the word thieves is used in our text today. Like there is a pluralness to this as well. Now, now clearly the power of sin or the power of evil is behind the action of these thieves. But I don't think Jesus is necessarily talking about the devil himself here. And, and again, this is why we read in context. Really, I think Jesus here is talking about those who would present themselves as counter shepherds. Those who would position themselves as good shepherds, as knowing the way to pasture, but who in reality are thieves who didn't enter the fold the right way. They didn't come through Christ. They've climbed over the fence. They don't actually care about the sheep um, and they don't have the ability to lead the sheep to true pasture. They're after their own ends. And this could be actual people that he's referring to. I mean, it could be that he's talking about the Pharisees, right? He's, he's just, in the end of chapter 9, he's just called them blind. But, but I really think this is bigger than just the Pharisees, and, and maybe even bigger than just people. It isn't just that there were and are false messiahs out there. It's also that there were and are false gospels. Not just people that you can follow, but ideologies that you can follow that claim to lead the way to the true pasture, that claim to lead the way to the abundant life. Just as there is only one good shepherd, guys, there is only one good life. There's only one life of abundance. There is only one true pasture. And the point here is that no one accesses the true pasture except through the true shepherd of the sheep. And if you want this life of abundance, you will not find it through any other means. Quite to the contrary, you will instead find theft, death, and destruction. Because that's what these counter-messiahs and these counter-gospels have come to do. Steal, kill, and destroy. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at later in, I think, chapter 14, by the way, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the doorway. I am the good shepherd. He's trying to paint the picture for us that I am not one among many. I'm it. Now, here's another dynamic Jesus seems to be saying that within the fold, within the pen, there are already sheep who are his, but not necessarily all the sheep. Why are some of these sheep already his? He doesn't say. 
He does say in verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And then in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. We don't get the sense necessarily that he's leading all the sheep out of the fold, out of the pen. This seems to be this group of sheep that I think the New Testament authors would call the elect. And I don't want to glaze over this because it is a significant theme here in John and also in the New Testament. And I think it's something that many of us are confused about. Also, I don't want to be here until 1230 today. Uh, so I'm going to put a pin in this until next week. And next week, we're going to continue and look specifically at the topic of divine election here in this text, uh, but also in several other texts that we've seen here in John's gospel. Because here's the big question, guys. How can he be a good shepherd if all the sheep aren't being saved from thieves and wolves? Does that make sense? How, how can he be a good shepherd? if all the sheep aren't being saved from the thieves and the wolves. So just hold that thought, if you will, and we will dig into it next week. Let me close with this today. Uh, scholar Jonathan Pennington says this, Jesus, Christianity, and the New Testament documents are birthed directly out of Judaism. And so whatever else we understand about their meaning must be grounded in this reality. Any reading that ignores this is a decontextualized reading that may bear some fruit but cannot be described as sensitive to the intention of the text. So, so let's apply that logic to today's passage. Jesus is a Jew speaking to Jews in the Jewish holy city of Jerusalem. There is a sheepfold that we could call Israel. There is this pen, if you will, that we could call Israel. And then there's this sheepfold that we could call the Gentiles, or possibly even many sheepfolds that we could call the Gentiles. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Here's the image. There are many sheep in different folds, but in each fold there are sheep who hear and respond to the voice of the good shepherd. They are led out of their folds by the shepherd, who is Christ, and they all enter together into this new fold where the doorway of, or the gate is also Christ. And where they can come and go and find true pasture. And all of those sheep from different folds come together to make up this new flock. And this flock is marked by who their shepherd is. Because what distinguishes their shepherd from all the other shepherds out there is that this shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. Because only he truly loves the sheep more than he loves himself. He is intrinsically good. So what is your vision of the good life? 
Friends, if it is a vision that hinges on the accumulation of money or the acquisition of certain material things or a particular type of house or a job or a majestic location or a life of leisure or sex, I think the scriptures would seek to warn you that you are potentially buying into the voice of a false shepherd. And that what you think is true pasture is not true pasture. And that even if you had all of those things, you would find that they are still not enough. And I think most of us know this is true. You know this is true. Many of you have devoted yourselves to the pursuit of a certain job or career, for example. How many of you guys have spent four to ten years past undergrad in college or in school? in pursuit of a job or money or a certain type of lifestyle or house or exotic vacations or how about this how about a certain relationship only to find that you are still longing for something else author Alan Noble says and I'm I'm paraphrasing here but he says something to the effect of many of us think that what we most need is the one like you get in that phase of life where you're not married and maybe you're not dating somebody and you think man if I could just find the right person then I will have this good life that all of these other people seem to have and he says we we go through this season of life where we think man I just I just hope I can find that person and then finally things will fall into place and things will be how I want them to be. But he says something to the effect of, but then we wake up 10 to 15 years later and find we have the one in our life, but it is still not enough. I'm still not like at peace. I'm still anxious. I'm still worried and fearful. And I'm still thinking that the lives that other people have seem to be better than mine. And obviously social media and the internet in general has just exacerbated something that's all, you know, existed forever, just covetousness. This pursuit of the good life, if it is defined in purely earthly terms, is perpetually elusive. There is only one true shepherd. This is the point. And if you think you're going to enter into this life of abundance, if you're going to find this true pasture, this sort of land of milk and honey, without going through him, without playing by his rules, without abiding by his boundaries and definitions, you are wrong. This is what he is saying in today's text. Listen, we have to accept that we don't know the way to this life of abundance, just on our own. I, I don't know how to get there, right? And, and I'm, I'm not the one leading us there or this church there, right? I, I can't do that. Only the good shepherd can do this. Only Jesus himself can do this. And we cannot follow both him and also our own paths. Like we can't follow him and our own maps. It doesn't work. What winds up happening often, especially around here, is that we actually follow our own paths while claiming to be following him. And and that just doesn't work. It's impossible. 
We can't do both of those things. So our pursuit of him has to begin and continue with a recognition of our own ignorance. That, that I, I don't really know how to get to this abundant life because I've pursued this and I've pursued this and I've tried this over here and yet all of those things still leave me longing for more. We don't know the way, but we can know the one who knows the way. The door himself. Let me leave you with this thought. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus died in order to bring us to God. Jesus died in order to bring us to God. And that in that sense, much like Noah and his family entered the ark and made it safely through the tumult of the flood, so we must enter into the ark of Christ if we are to make it safely through the tumult of this world. And this is truly, I think, what it means to be in Christ. Like we are in him. And as the shepherd, what does the shepherd do, right? As the protector of the, sh of the flock, of the sheep. When we are in Christ, he is the one who is able to bring us safely through the brokenness and the fallenness of our world into the true pasture, into his flock, this is where all of this language in the New Testament about adoption and about our lack of deservedness comes into play. Man, we don't deserve to be in his flock. And yet he brings us through when we are in him. I mean, literally think inside of him. Him carrying us through. So as the psalmist said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, abandon your pursuit of other shepherds and follow the only one who is truly good. And God bless the hearing and reading of his word today. Let us pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you for not abandoning us in this world despite our sin, despite not naturally being of your flock. We thank you for sending Christ who lays down his life for the sheep so that we might hear his voice and come out of the pens that we have been in. Father, we pray today that you would give us a clarity on the things in our lives or the people in our lives or the ideologies in our lives that we are inclined or tempted to follow rather than you. Maybe because they seem more tangible, maybe because they seem more real. Whatever the reason, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a clarity on those things so that we might very intentionally repent of them in, in, in the most literal sense that we might turn from them and turn to follow you as our shepherd. 
and that we might look to the example of Christ himself, who has modeled this for us, who only does what he sees you, Father, doing. And that we also might follow suit, mimicking and emulating and seeking to step in your footprints. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your gospel. We thank you for calling us into your flock despite our sin and our failure. Truly, you are good. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand.